If you could all stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading Luke 20, 45 through Luke 21, verse 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and the best places and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shires, for all that you've done for our church and our community. Love you guys so much. And great actual neighbors, too. We moved in down the street from them, which was our gain and their loss. <laughs> Once upon a time, the, the devil was walking across North Africa, and he comes across some of his junior demons, and they're torturing this godly man, a godly hermit. And the demons are adamant about trying to get this godly man to transgress, to violate God's law, to do something outside of God's word. And the demons are trying very hard to entice, entice this holy man on, you know, what we would call kind of carnal pleasures, you know, lusts of the flesh, material things, and the hermit staying very holy and committed to God's word. And the devil gathers around the demons and he says, well, your approach is all wrong. He says, if you want to get somebody to fall, you need a more subtle approach more crafty. It says, just tell that godly hermit that his brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. Now, that story comes from Oscar Wilde, and I think that why it, why it has endured through the ages, through the times now, is because it hits on this everyday, very dark impulse of envy. That no matter how much we'd say that it's not good to be envious or jealous, that in our hearts that we are those concerned about social rank that here we have in today's reading that Jesus, again, in the last week of his life, he's marching towards the cross, and he tells his followers, verse 46, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feasts and who give long-winded prayers. In other words, that there's a lot, Jesus would say, who's concerned about social rank. And if we're honest, again, that I think that this crops up, especially in our demographic, quite regularly. How important am I? Do I matter? How am I sizing up against my neighbors? You know, the old Smiths and Joneses. Am I, you know, sending up the right signals? And again, and I think this even happens at the kind of subconscious level, but we have all kinds of what we could call social indicators. So just a few on the note. So watches shoes, cars, social media followers who were influencing, titles, that's a big one, place in the organizational chart at work, speech patterns, now increasingly body shape, all of those will confront somebody and immediately it sends a signal of their social status. It's everywhere. Think even of, you know, te teeth, straight teeth, white teeth, all of these things are cues about where I'm at in the kind of pattern of life. Now, the real number of problems with this, but one, think about what great anxiety that causes. 
that if that's the game, as I go through life and I'm trying to, you know, compare myself and I'm always preoccupied about these types of things, then I'm going to be a tremendously anxious person because it seems like a place where you could never quite completely arrive. So not only does it eat us up, but it tends to make for very bad kind of relationships and friendships as well. Now look at Jesus, what he's warning us about. Say this is an indicator. Yes, there are ancient Near Eastern customs that we come across last week. Remember the Leverite vow? We're thinking, well, that's odd. You know, marrying your, your brother's wife after he dies. Yes, an ancient Near Eastern custom. But today's passage, again, hits right on to say, look at how modern that there are those of means, and look at the four areas where they're taking great pride, that uh, walking around, they like walking around in their long, elaborate robes, so close. I don't know about you, but I definitely remember in middle school, there was tremendous pressure, and this will date me, uh, to have the right amount of Abercrombie and Fitch. That was the right thing to have chagrin mid-1990s. Um, Great anxiety about that. This, by the way, I wear the same thing every week. Say, so ruin all status indicators on Sunday mornings, but clothes. You put together in the right way. Oh, I see. Or again, you think about greeting one another in public places, presumably with titles. Um, you know, there was a whole part of the oral tradition of the Jews about greeting, you know, elaborate greetings. It's a little bit like the, you know, doctor, 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 so everyone can hear, something like that. I remember very clearly where I was uh, in England when I said, introduce myself to a man, and I said, well, hello, I'm Austin, to which he said, well, I'm Lord Alderdice. And I said, well, I don't think this friendship's going anywhere. <laughs> but I, I realized I was to the left of him politically, which is interesting. So yes, Lord Alderdice, anyway. So titles, greetings to one another, having the right uh, things before or after your name the best seats at social gatherings. Again, that this is not lost on a lot of people. You know, you go to a banquet or something. I mean, who gets to sit up front? Well, the people that are really important. I mean, VIP. It's amazing. You have a VIP, and then you say, what is that? A very important person. And where they sit. Well, very important in what way? And how about these prayers that they're saying, that these scribes like to make a pretense of their long prayers? Presumably, the pretense can both be in their words, using a, a vocabulary, a, a learned vocabulary, or maybe just it's showing everybody else how holy they are, that if you go out in public and you say the right kind of prayers, you say, well, I'm very much a godly fellow, and all of these would fall into the category, again, of being, I think, class conscious, to be about social rank, to, to be about one-upmanship. And again, why I think this comes in, not just anxiety, but you see how this kind of thing plays on, I would say, our darkest impulses. That the reason why jealousy and entitlement are so powerful is because it plays right into the sin nature of selfishness. A word that I think we do well to study is that of resentment and the rise of a politics of resentment in America. So for say, you know, you can either talk a lot about responsibility and hard work and gratitude and godly contentment, the old Christian virtues, or you can talk like this. If somebody else has something nice, they took it from you, and you got to get them back. 
And that's a very strong driver. Now, interestingly, Nietzsche, the atheistic philosopher, you know, Nietzsche is very anti-God. He'd like hate the kind of thing we're doing this morning, but he makes a, an interesting bedfellow for the church. He's kind of a, an interesting companion because he paints the picture of what the world's like without God. And it was Nietzsche in his genealogy of morals says resentment is a very strong driver for action. Get everybody feeling entitled. Get everybody looking over their shoulder as to who has more than they do and then fuel it with anger and you watch it take off. And I think partly here Jesus is saying, beware. Beware of that game. Oh, look at his robes. I wish I had nicer robes. I need nicer robes. Oh, look at their status. How do I show I'm a little bit better than them? Well, there's that guy over there. I know that I'm better than him. So it's a very ungodly game. Now, again, this can make a fool of us. It reminded me this week of a story of a friend. I verified the deal, de de details yesterday, but I have a friend who was born in the 1950s in St. Clairsville, Ohio. Some of you know where St. Clairsville It's really a suburb of Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, his father, uh, the generation of his fathers, they were all in the mines. Many of the dads, you know, would, uh, it wasn't infrequent to have a dad die in the mines. So my friend uh, talked a certain way. Uh, he looked a certain way, being from those parts, but he also uh, had tremendous ability, particularly in math. And as he would come through the ranks of education, go off to Bowling Green, he finds himself in the 1970s in a PhD program in computer science and mathematics at Pitt. And in the department at Pitt, somehow it came out because my friend wore long hair and he looked a certain way and he talked a certain way and he lacked social graces. Uh, they said, well, this guy doesn't belong in the maths department at Pitt, that there was a female professor who one day, kind of in front of a group of people, says, what are you doing here? Tractor boy. And that slur stuck. That the other PhD mathematicians began to call this man tractor boy. Now, as is still the case, as far as I know, that every year Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, another institution in Pittsburgh, give out a prestigious Mellon Fellowship. It's to the top mathematician and computer scientists. There's a great competition to see who, who was great in that area. And so my friend ends up winning this award, the Mellon Fellowship, presented by the Mellon family personally. It would almost always go to a Carnegie Mellon student. This year it came to my friend at Pitt, and he comes down. They say, would well, you come down to collect your, or acknowledge that you've been the recipient of this Mellon fellow, Fellowship? My friend walks into the math department at Pitt. The female professor is there and saying, what are you doing here, tractor boy? To which my friend says, well, I'm Al Copper, and I'm here to receive the Mellon Fellowship. And to her credit, she apologized, but 50 years later, my friend tells that story. What happened there? She saw the way he looked, the way he talked, that he didn't have the right social graces, and concluded this man's no real ability here. Say, it's a little bit like that with these. Look at my robes. Look at how I speak. Look at where I sit. But God says, I'm not interested in any of that. Actually, I'm much more interested in what's on the inside. Now, I think it's important, again, in a congregation like ours to look closely at the text, and we're always you know, thinking now, was well, it wrong to have nice clothes? Is it wrong to have titles? And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, but I draw our attention again to verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And then a very modern use of the word love, and love greetings in the marketplaces. So it's not the problem that you're a JD. The problem is if we wear that in such a way where I say, I really love this title and I'm going to let you know about it. That's the problem.
because I've entered the arena of jealousy and envy and entitlement and resentment and close social climbing, very much things that Christians, I think, ought to be against. Now, the end of verse 37 is intimidating. The end of this, Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. You see that? Now, this implies what is made explicit elsewhere in Scripture, that there is a gradation of punishment in hell. But I think if we say what's Jesus really saying here is that it's worse to be a fake, a fake Christian than somebody that rejects it outright. That actually it's much more damaging to be somebody who says, well, I follow Jesus, and then kind of blindly deep down the rabies of the heart, as Melville said, the envy comes out, that that actually is much more of an offense than, you know, those who outright reject it. And we tend to be much more worried about all the bad people on social media out there instead of looking deep down at my heart. And the reason why, please don't hear, wow, the greater condemnation, this is not, I would never have the courage to tell anybody that myself. And that's because... I'm status conscious. I'm guilty of thinking about social indicators. All my, I, I fight this all the time. I'm guilty. So I think in this, what we're supposed to see is God in Jesus, by his grace, can begin to work on me in such a way where I am not preoccupied with externals and social climbing, but actually that God would continue to open my eyes to what a, a sinner that I am and how I've been saved by grace. And maybe in the course of my whatever time I have, I might just, in the end, think more about others than I do myself in a good way. So Jesus warns us, beware of the scribes who like their clothes and like their speech and want to show off, fueling resentment and social comparison. Beware of them how much better to rest cast yourself on the grace of God and in his care. Now, following up on that, it's an unfortunate chapter break here by the English editors, but uh, there's another scene, a, a story here. Jesus is people watching, and what he sees is that this same group of people, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, there's around the temple, there are 13 receptacles that kind of described in the literature as being a kind of trumpet shape, and you'd go around, and you can just picture them. This was a completely voluntary activity, but it was the way that God prescribed to be worshipped, right? The temple uh, was how God was to be rightly worshipped and sacrificed. And so if you were a committed Jew, that you would give to the temple treasury. But here comes this group of rich scribes, that they're making a big show of it. You can almost picture them there, right? To, I guess bringing up bags of money, kind of saying who could have the biggest bag and you know, kind of pretending not to show off, but making a big show to say, look at how much I'm giving, and looking at their buddy to say, well, I don't know, I think I'm giving a little bit more than you. And no doubt, in Mark's or Matthew's, one of the two uh, tellings of this story, that they are putting in a, a considerable amount of money. Now contrast that with the next figure, verse 2. And Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now, remarkably, what does Jesus say? This two coins, by the way, the lepta. So two small copper coins known as the lepta. It's hard to bring ancient currencies into modern currency, but something like this. That a lepta would have been about one-eighth of a penny. And uh, others would say, well, maybe it's better to say a, a, this kind of contribution would have been one one-twenty-eighth of a day's wages, an average day's wages, one one-twenty-eighth 
a very, very, very small amount of money. And the woman comes and puts in these two small copper coins, to which Jesus says this, this poor widow put in more than all. I think more than all combined. Now, either Jesus is really bad at math, like me. No, uh, actually, Jesus is making a profound point. Why is this widow held up as such a great example? I think there are two things about her that give us uh, our proper attitude, heart attitude in this arena. First, the widow, notice, gives willingly. The widow gives willingly from the heart. She's not caught up in the comparison game, right? So all the rich people are bringing and making a big show of putting their money in. She's obviously not doing that. She is in no way coerced, but rather she's doing this out of obedience to God. There is no arm twisting. There is no manipulation. There is no effort to socially climb. Rather, it's giving unto the Lord. Now, whenever a pastor talks about money, there's, there's one thing that's definitely inevitable. I'll try to clear the air here. There's some of you who you're visiting here for the first time, and what you're saying now is, in my old church, all the pastor did was talk about money. I come into this church, and now here we go about money again. Say, no, actually, at this church, what we do is we, we go through the Bible, and so when the passage of the Bible talks about it, we talk about it together. That's what sets the agenda. So you want to see what we'll talk about next week, just read the next part of your Bible. So when you follow the Bible, you talk about what God wants you to talk about. Secondly, Jesus and the Bible talk a lot about money. And the reason they do is because this is a key area of our lives. Let's face it, every day that this is, this is part of what it means to be in the modern world and to get this area right, to honor God in this area, to take care of our responsibilities is something that he wants us to do well. He wants us to excel here. So if you feel at all that I am arm twisting or manipulating you in any way, I'd actually be violating the very point I think the Bible's making. <laughs> that the, the Bible here is making the point, the poor widow gives freely unto God in a way that is not coerced by anyone in any position. She's giving from her heart. So the widow cares about honoring God. The widow gives willingly. What else about the widow? The widow gives sacrificially. Now, the gifts from the rich, no doubt, I think there's a couple of ways we can phrase this. The gifts from the rich are of higher quantity. There's no doubt about that. But they are of lesser quality. More quantity, but lower quality. The widow's giving was of great quality. Or to phrase it a little bit differently, to say which gift cost the person more? Well, Jesus tells us, say the rich are giving out of their abundance. We'd say now giving out of a windfall. I've got a little bit more here. What should I do with it? Verse her giving out of her poverty, it cost the widow immensely to give, even though the amount was smaller. Now think too about this. Why does she give two lepta, two copper coins? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, if I was really poor and I had two coins, and I still want to, I, 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 I want to honor God, I do, I give one lepta. I, I'm, I'm so poor, I'll give one to God, but I'll keep one lepta to myself. I think the reason why we're told she gives two lepta is to say that she... <laughs> really is coming open-handed. 
the phrase that's used, right? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. I don't think it's a stretch to say what made the widow's gift so valuable. She put her life in God's hands. She gave her life to the Lord. She gave sacrificially. Now at this point, I'm asking, why would anyone do this, really? Um, to give of our resources willingly and sacrificially. It goes right against the current of kind of, you know, again, social one-upmanship. You don't get any points for this. It goes right against the creed, American creed of comfort. Why would anyone do this? And I think that our answer to that must be as a profound realization of what the Lord Jesus did for us that if we think of Jesus, the Lord of glory, think of the wealthiest person that you know that has anything, think of how more vastly rich the world's riches are at Jesus' fingertips as God's rightful heir, God's eternal son, and yet for our sakes, Philippians 2, he became poor, giving up his status insofar as the throne to come down into a world like ours, being humiliated at the hands of sinful people, embarrassed naked on a cross, sacrificing himself so that we might live. And if we don't say that's very real, I don't know why anyone would give to a church unless we see Jesus as the one who gave willingly and sacrificially and somehow in my limited way that I want to do that as well. But the point being, what is Jesus striving at here? It's not about quantity. It's about quality. It's about the attitude of the heart. And here, again, just to say, it's not that we say give to the point of poverty because we all have other responsibilities in life, children, home, taking care of our responsible obligations, also a biblical good. But the question is, am I giving to the Lord from my heart? Or am I doing it for some other reason? So final point then, before we sing our, our last hymn. So Jesus warns us about craving status. He warns us about the dark forces of envy and jealousy and resentment. He teaches us that our giving is in fact an act of worship when we do so willingly and sacrificially unto him. Lastly, giving is in a relationship with our spiritual maturity. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting question, to say, who is more spiritually mature? The experts on the Bible or the poor widow? It's very clear. The widow is more spiritually mature, not the people who are breaking down and parsing out the Hebrew of the Bible, but actually the, the lady, in this case, who gives to God from the heart. Now, why is this, again, such a mark of spiritual maturity? I've been thinking about this. I think it's worth saying, and I want to be cautious here. Christopher Hitchens would always say, what's one thing that a believer does that a non-believer does not do? And I think that what he's on about is to say, well, I can be a non-Christian and do the same things Christians do. And what he's, what he's on about is say, we, we give to the poor, uh, that's a very good thing to do, to look at the dispossessed of Lorain County and say, well, there's something for us to do. We can model and talk about good behavior and honesty, something the church should do, be kind to others. We definitely do that. Attending a church service might be nice. I mean, after all, you know, the churches are, 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 are good and I occasionally want to come. All of those things, I think, you can, you can non-believers and believers can do together. We don't really know. But it seems to me that a church like ours 
that sees the primary need of the world as the need for Jesus, that the only way that you would give to a church like this is to really believe that the primary need in the world is Jesus. That if the backbone and the proclamation of any church from the New Testament to ours is that God put forth Jesus into history, that he died on the cross for the sins of all those who'd come to him, will you repent and turn to Jesus? If that's the primary thing, to give to anything that that's the point, seems to me you got to really believe that. Yes, we do other nice things for other people, but that's a consequence of what Jesus did for us. Jesus Christ and him crucified which is why in our membership covenant, we say if we're a member of this church, we view giving as an act of worship and as a sign of spiritual maturity. So church family, many of you, I must say, I know that you've given willingly and sacrificially. That there are families here today that at the beginning of the month, they sit down and say, well, it would be really nice to go to a nice restaurant a few more times this month. But I see that if we do that, it's going to come from some... Actually, what we're going to do, we might go out once a month, and we're going to give to our church. We're going to give to where the name of Jesus is going forth, because that's what we feel led to do. We're going to give willingly, and we're going to give sacrifice. We're going to say no to something in order to give to the proclamation of the gospel. Others of us, because we don't pass a plate here, that's intentional. We said we're counting on the members to see this truth. Others may be a chance for you. Again, not, I hate being arm-twisted or forced. I tend not to give when I feel that, but it's a chance for you this week to sit down to look at expenses, right? You say, where's my heart? Well, my expenses are a pretty good indication. So God, look back at household expenses of the Shaws in the winter of 23, 24. Say, well, Shaw really liked the calves, which I do. Um, but what would it say? What would it say? So a chance to really cultivate this area of our lives, trusting God, right? Trusting why do we give, not so others see, but rather that I'm going to come and give willingly and sacrificially, realizing that's what Jesus did for me and that the primary need of the world is not something that anybody else is going to do. Other people, they're doing other... What we're about, God came in the form of Jesus and his son, he was on the cross for us. Will others come and follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, be made right with their creator? That's the backbone of this church. So Lord, uh, uh, friends, brothers and sisters, the world values appearances. The world values status. What we need to help one another do is to cultivate tender hearts. Tender hearts, open hands, so that Christ might be lifted high. Sinners would be humbled, Christ would be exalted, and that we would promote one another in an effort to, to please him. So I'll pray. Loving Father, I thank you for this widow. Thank you for just a few short lines. We get such a word picture. Can we picture those flowing robes uh, beautifully knit together? Some, it would be a lifetime of earnings probably to just get a robe like that, and they come up with their bags of money and put it in and say, well, look at this. Uh, temple's making it because of somebody like me looking at their buddy. And over in the shadows in her rags, probably a life of hardship, the most vulnerable person in the society comes up 
in the way that she would, maybe limping up, who knows, with those two little copper coins, not looking over her shoulder, but saying, Lord, I want to honor you with what I have, and not just giving the money, but putting her life into the hands of the Redeemer. Lord, help us when we come to a passage like this not to feel guilty about not giving or twisted by the pastor, but to say, Lord, do I have some work to do here? How am I supporting the proclamation of Jesus willingly and sacrificially? And how might the name of Jesus go forth and we be models like this lady who say, you know what, Lord, prevent us, help us in these uh, matters of social climbing that we're all so very prone to. And may our eyes be fixed on you and on loving one another for Christ's sake. Amen.